You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Markets are bouncing back after yesterday's sell-off. Should you race to buy what's left of this dip? We'll hear from one investor who says don't buy until stocks fall quite a bit more, and he's got some key numbers. Speaking of key numbers, Bitcoin back above 50,000 as money continues flowing into crypto. Are signs pointing to an even bigger rally? And everyone's talking about Facebook, the whistleblowers on Capitol Hill. But yesterday's outage shows just how much we depend on the company's platform to connect and do business. Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary joins us to explain whether Facebook is ultimately a friend or a foe to small business. But let's begin with this bounce back for the market. Dow's up 410 points this hour. That's off the session highs. Seeing a nice comeback after yesterday's decline, we're up 1.2% and a little bit more even across the board today. 1.2% for the Dow, 1.4% for the broader S&P, 1.5% for the Nasdaq. Still not quite erasing yesterday's decline. Dow was up 480 at the session highs today. Big Cap Tech is making a comeback. Netflix, the outperformer, hitting another all-time high. Netflix is up 4.5% today. It's almost at $631 a share. Amazon up nearly 2%, still in negative territory for the year. Financials are also leading the rally today. Check out some of these gains. The QQQ Invesco Trust, that's a little bit different story, up 1.7%. But Charles Schwab, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Goldman's up 3% today, up 45% for the year. And Charles Schwab getting an initiation in Atlantic Equities with an overweight now. Let's talk about our personal obsession on this show. Look at what's happening across the energy complex. Look at nat gas, not what you want to see if you're on the receiving end of these prices. But if you're investing in energy, you are continuing to see outperformance, an 8% gain with nat gas now trading around $6.23 per million BTUs. Devon Energy Pioneer, modest increases today, about 2%, 3% in the case of Marathon Oil. A lot of discussion as well about how much nat gas might continue to drag up oil prices and other uh, energy prices going into the end of the year. On the flip side of the equation, over in the EV space, it's another rough day for Lordstown. Morgan Stanley downgraded the stock. Analyst Adam Jonas reinstated this company just last week at an equal weight. The concern here is the plant sale. They just named Foxconn uh, the seller for this plant they had, obviously, but also the price of the plant a fifth of what the prior estimate had been. So the disappointment there that this asset was not worth what the analyst had hoped shows ride shares down nearly 11% today. They're trading at $5.22. So stocks are rallying after yesterday's sell-off, but the S&P is still down nearly 4% since the start of September. This was its worst month since last March. But for our next guest, this recent drop still isn't enough to put capital to work. Let's welcome in Barry Knapp. He's the managing partner over at Ironside's Macroeconomics, Barry. And why is 4,100 a magic number for you? Well, 4,100 is 10% off the off the highs. And if you look at every business cycle since World War II and <clears throat> the last cycle in particular, what you find is when we reach the point when the Fed starts normalizing policy, we've reached escape velocity, uh, you get what prior to the global financial crisis was about an 8% correction post the global financial crisis when QE was involved. And we've talked about that and can, I can amplify or uh, extend my views on this, you got more like an 11% correction. So we've expected 10 to 12. Furthermore, we've seen very little signs that um, uh, some of the, the issues that have started to really roll over, like earnings revisions, for example, which are headed south, they don't look like they've bottomed yet. 
We've not seen any extremes in sentiment as evidenced by the, the volatility market. We never, we haven't had an inversion of the VIX curve, for example. So we're very far from uh, really having completed a correction the way it typically would occur when we start normalizing policy. So you're watching the VIX. I would imagine you're watching interest rates. You're watching the Fed here. What are the green lights that you're looking for? 4,100 might be one of them, but what are some of the other fundamental catalysts that could change your view or, or tell you that the chase is now on for stocks to move higher? Well, there, was a, there were a whole bunch of inflection points here that all occurred. I, I know the focus has been on the Fed, and I've made it sound as if that was the real catalyst for my call. And in some ways, it was the catalyst, but we've got fiscal policy tightening coming as well thinking that somehow spending another $2 trillion financed by raising corporate taxes is fiscal stimulus, not from the perspective of an equity investor. It's not. It's tightening, right? So we still are faced with that um, hurdle. We've got a big change in liquidity coming when we get the debt ceiling done deal done, which it will be part of reconciliation the Treasury is going to start issuing again. That's going to drain liquidity out of the system. All that money that's sitting in reverse repo, that's going to change. That's going to change the liquidity dynamic. We still haven't seen volatility in fixed income go up as a consequence of the Fed cutting back on their mortgage purchases. So that's a hurdle. And as I said, we really haven't seen uh, this downward trend in net revisions, earnings revisions, the number of analysts increasing estimates, less those decreasing analysts. That's headed south, and we haven't seen that bottom either. Now, yeah. could that yeah. all happen during earnings season? Maybe, but we actually yet. talked about this with Neil Hennessy yesterday. I believe it was him. It might have been uh, Barry James the day before. But tell me why you see estimates heading down. You know, we're used to people kind of setting estimates low and then then moving right. higher as the quarters approach. What's going on there? Yeah, that was what part of my bullish thesis for most of this year. I set my models to update every Friday. Every single week, that S&P 500 2021 estimate went up, started at 163, went all the way to 203 by the beginning of September, a 23% increase. So the, the really the, the, uh, rising earnings estimates were driving things up, but then it stalled in September. And it makes sense. The comparisons are getting harder for tech. That's leading revisions to go down because it's a rate of change indicator, right? So if the numbers aren't going up, that starts to fall. It's like ISM, for example. And then the staple sector, it's coming up very hard. That's concerned about input costs, commodity costs, and the like. And so, you know, we've just reached the point where the comparisons are much more difficult. And this is a manifestation of that. It's important early in the cycle when revisions are going up, that generally pushes the multiple up and earnings up and why the rallies are so powerful early in the cycle. But when you reach that inflection point where it stops going up, that's when we're vulnerable to corrections. And that's All right, where so I think we're at. Let's pull, and there's the tech sector, which I know you've been cautious on for over a year now. So let's pull it back to the S&P 500, the levels that you're watching. Are you seriously going to wait till 4,100 before you put capital to work? I mean, that's what I was trying to get at is what's more important for you, the technicals or the fundamentals, the story itself? Well, we need to, as I said, we need to get through these fundamental catalysts and we haven't yet, right? We haven't decided on what the, the corporate tax hike is going to be. There's likely to be one. We haven't started the taper process and seen fixed income vol move and revisions haven't bottomed yet. So I'd need to see those things happen from a fundamental perspective. Hmm. And it's likely my technical perspective on this is we'll see it in the vol market. I care far more about what they pay than what they say. Right. So <laughs> surveys of investors, I don't really care about. 
I, I'm an equity derivative guy from way back when. When I see that vol curve or VIX curve invert, I know that fear has taken over. Positioning is much healthier. And then we're probably going to bottom. And history would tell you it's at least 10 percent off the highs. All so. right. Barry, thank you so much for explaining this uh, and kind of bringing it all together. It's great to have you today. We'll check back in soon. That's Barry Knapp from Ironsides. Now to China. Investors are on edge as the country faces continued problems with major property developers, an energy shortage that's slowing growth and spiking prices worldwide, and aggressive behavior towards Taiwan. Joining me now is Michael Yoshikami. He is the Destination Wealth Management CEO. Michael, it's good to see you. First, it was Evergrande. Now this Fantasia company missed a bond payment this week. In the real estate sector in China, is as much as 15% of GDP, maybe more. Where are we going exactly. from here? Uh, we're going to have problems. You're going to continue to see a correction in the China real estate market. Uh, and it's going to really cascade through the entire economy. I think, as you mentioned, it's really important to recognize um, that 15% of GDP uh, for China is real estate. So what happens if real estate actually goes into a deflationary mode, which I expect it probably will? It's going to have a negative effect on China, negative effect on emerging markets. Uh, and so that's really troublesome, really, for the Chinese economy. And I think for the global economy, it creates a headwind. And we've talked about sort of maybe the concern over the next year or so heading into this uh, big event next year where President Xi is likely to get a third term, nearly unprecedented situation. You think maybe it's a position <laughs> of strength that he yeah. is uh, allowing for these various kind of shakeouts in, in all these different parts of the economy where he's clamping down. Right. What would you tell investors about the aggressive behavior towards Taiwan as well? Does that fit into your previous uh, point of view about what's happening there? Or is that new information that changes the equation for you? No, I think I think it all fits in. I think it's a part of a new nationalist perspective that is really very much focused on the, the core ideology uh, pre-capitalism, you know, pre uh, when Jack Ma had free run in the economy. Uh, you know, something else I want to bring up, I, I think I mentioned to you in a note, um, Kelly, is the thing that investors are not really aware of is how much off the balance sheet transactions there really are happening in China. And believe it or not, even municipalities are doing this. There's, there's a term out there, local government financing vehicles that are used by municipalities to float debt against that municipality, but it's off the balance sheet. Does that sound a little bit like what happened during the financial crisis in the United States, off the balance sheet mm -hmm. transactions? So the, um, the, the lack of transparency in China is what's troublesome. And I think that's going to create continued problems um, for the Chinese economy. So we've talked about how you would tell people maybe tread warily uh, here. Repeatedly, you've said, you know, it's too soon to buy uh, these dips, so to speak, uh, that, you know, others might see as opportunities because the sell-offs have been right. pretty striking. What is your right. advice to investors now? You know, is, is there... Are there parts of the market that have either gotten too cheap for you or areas that you think might be relatively more safe? You know, it goes back to the discussion we've been having all year. If a company like Alibaba, they might have capped the upside at this point. But if it's not going away, at some point it trades quasi-utility like as a, an asset of the government. I mean, how much more downside is there? Uh, there could be a lot more downside. Um, you know, it's something that was really not reported very much was um, – uh, uh, Alibaba gave a third of their cash. Think about this. A third of the cash they pledged to give to the government to fund social programs for the government. Now, I don't know why it wasn't reported so much, but think about it. Imagine if Apple had to give a third of their cash. What would that do to the share price? So It'd probably go I, up, I think wouldn't that, it? I mean, wouldn't we all go great? They're so cozy with the government. They're never going away. 
No, I don't think that's <laughs> I think what we would say is they've just lost a third of the cash, and so the company is worth less. So I, I think that um, how much lower can it go? Um, I think it can go lower. I think that really you're in a position where on, a, on the China front, uh, you got to wait until the dust settles when the government really has made their um, statement very, very clear. And I think it's going to take time. I certainly think it's going to be uh, not this year. I think it's going to be sometime next year when you get more clarity, when when finally companies understand what the rules are and when this real estate issue finally shakes out. All right. So then final word, you want more clarity for companies. Uh, think maybe that could come next year. And then what would you say to those who are trying to figure out how to price in uh, the aggressive behavior towards Taiwan? Is it uh, simply a demonstration or does it raise the risk of some kind of geopolitical incident? Oh, I think it definitely raises the risk. I mean, China is not only... Uh, playing around with what's happening with Taiwan, but also in the Philippines are actually really disputing some of the territorial waters near the Philippines as well. So um, I think that this all fits in again to President Xi's nationalist agenda. Uh, and I think they've already shown that they're willing to go to great lengths, including limiting children doing video games 10 hours a week. I mean, if that isn't dramatic, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what is. So they're really going to act in an autocracy as an autocracy, and I think that it's it's not over yet. I think what's happening in Taiwan is really um, is really indicative of what the whole Chinese perspective is now. They're going to control the economy, they're going to control the politics, and they're going to be heavy-handed when they do it. All right, Michael. Thanks. Uh, it's good to kind of get updated on all of these uh, events with you. We appreciate it today. My pleasure. Mike Yoshikami from Destination Wealth Management. Coming up, tech, at least in the U.S., is rebounding from yesterday's sell-off. But nearly 50 names in the sector are still down more than 10% from their recent highs. We'll ask a top tech analyst which names to pick up here and which to leave behind. Plus, Facebook is getting a ton of attention this week as whistleblower Francis Haugen's testimony coincides with the social media network's worst outage since 2008. How bad was the fallout for small businesses, and are they too reliant on Facebook? We'll explore that. And as we head to break, here's a look at the S&P sector heat map. Financials and tech leading the way. Only two sectors are in the red today, utilities and real estate. Quite a rates play. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. Quick news alert. Not many details, but we do want to get this headline to you. The White House is now saying that the president has full confidence in Fed Chair Powell, president reportedly commenting en route to Michigan today. We'll bring you any more details as we get them. Meantime, we'll take a look at Monday's tech sell-off, costing Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet more than $200 billion total dollars in value. The Nasdaq down more than 2% yesterday, putting it more than 7% down from its all-time closing high just last month. After yesterday's drop, Amazon is now 16% down from its yearly high, Facebook down 15%, and Apple down 12%. So which tech names should investors buy on these dips? DA Davidson's Tom Forte is here to tell us. No pressure, Tom. It's good to have you. Let's start with, um, are there any that just kind of immediately jump out to you as, you know, undervalued, oversold um, names that investors definitely want to pick up here? Sure. So thanks for having me, Kelly. When I think about the sell-off, the one standout to me is Apple. When you look at the current multi-year benefits they're going to have from this slow but sure build-out of 5G, uh, their most important product from a sales and profitability standpoint the iPhone is incredibly well positioned, so well positioned that I think better than expected sales there 
could offset lost revenue uh, when you think about in-app purchases from the lawsuit with Epic Games. So I really think Apple's amazingly well-suited after the pullback. And you've been raising your price target with a buy rating for over a year. Uh, is 175 still your latest thinking? We're at 141 right now? Yes, it is. Tell me about that and whether you have any of the concerns that have been weighing on the stock for the past year, whether it was just the hangover post-pandemic, um, you know, questions about the competition that's out there for all their different services, uh, the future of the App Store. I mean, are, are none of those uh, overly significant to you? Well, okay, so I do think that the antitrust regulatory risk is very significant for big tech. Uh, you've talked about that today with Facebook and the whistleblower. Uh, we've watched the damage in real time in China, in particular for Alibaba. But if you look at the challenges facing tech right now, in particular the supply chain, Apple seems to have a better handle on it than its peers in either managing the chip shortage or managing logistics inflation. So I think in that regard, when you think about that setup, and again, very strong iPhone sales, Apple, I think, is different from the others in big tech and very attractive on the pullback. So tell me if I'm reading uh, your thoughts here correctly as well. You think some names like Apple have big upside potential, but it's also on your list that could have downside potential here, too. So the risk in general for tech is rising interest rates uh, due to concerns on inflation. And if you look at the good news in most of tech, uh, while Apple's warmly embraced the debt markets, there's a lot of tech companies that have no debt on their balance sheet. And again, I think that Apple's done a better job of managing the challenges as far as supply chain shortages, logistics, things of that nature. Uh, yes, the lost in-app purchase revenue on the Epic Games lawsuit is bad. But if you think about stronger iPhone sales, it being the most important product, and a much more robust Apple TV Plus uh, subscription video on demand effort for Apple, uh, that could offset the lost revenue from in-app purchases. All right. So those are some of the risks. You have others on your list that you think could have downside potential. It looks like Overstock, maybe Sonos, Wayfair and others. Are the, do they share the same uh, concern or are there different factors? So when you think about the downside risk in tech, I like to look at our coverage and compare the enterprise value to sales multiple versus historical. So the names you mentioned there, Wayfair, Sonos, and Overstock, they're trading at premium valuations versus where they have historically. That's why I think there's downside. The good news for Overstock and for Wayfair is that both have done a really good job leveraging strong uh, home category. So to the extent that you have kind of a give and take now with consumers spending more on travel, that could present issues. But if you believe, like I do, the home category stays strong, then Overstock and Wayfair should be more than okay uh, Sonos has the advantage on supply chain where their consumer has shown a willingness to wait for their products, even if it takes longer to get them. All right. And finally, what would you do with the rest of big tech? Well, I think the challenge for big tech in general, in particular Facebook, is the antitrust regulatory concerns. Uh, if you look at e-commerce had a very strong 20 and advertising had a weak 20. So some of the better performers this year, like Google, have been able to take advantage of the easy compares on an advertising front. The good news is we flipped the charts next year, and I think e-com will be much better, and that bodes well for Amazon in 2022. If that bodes well for Amazon, where does that leave Netflix, which, of course, has you know, totally different things here that are drivers? Yeah, well, Netflix, I would argue the strength in Netflix is because they have yet another big hit on their hands when you think about their international uh, content and their ability to sustain popular content despite the fact there's been a meaningful increase 
and subscription video on demand competition is very uh, impressive. All right. So again, I'll reiterate more than 20 percent upside potential to your price target to think for Apple, Amazon uh, and maybe some of the others like Overstock, Pinterest, Roku that you mentioned. Uh, but again, with some downside risk in mind for some of those same names as well. Tom, thanks for joining me today. It's good to have you. Thank you, Kelly. Tom Forte of D.A. Davidson. Still ahead, don't look now, but Bitcoin is up over 20 percent in the past week and back above 50,000 for the first time in nearly a month. We'll break down the rally's technical trends and we'll speak with the regulator overseeing the $4 trillion muni market about the push into ESG and the rising popularity of green muni bonds. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. A quick check on markets. Dow is up 480 at session highs. We're still up 434 points today, so pretty much near those levels, a 1.3% gain. And in terms of sectors, financials and tech are leading the way with the Nasdaq rebounding 1.5% today as well. Real estate is the biggest laggard, one of the only sectors in the red today. You can definitely tell there's a rates overlay to the story today. Chips are also rebounding from yesterday's sell-off, led by NVIDIA with about 4.5% upside today. Every stock on this board is still down 5% from its 52-week highs, though, and negative over the past four weeks. Elsewhere, Peloton and Zoom are two stocks that are sitting out today's rebound. Peloton just went positive. Zoom is still down about a quarter percent. We're talking about 30 percent declines over the past three months as well. Bank of America is hitting its highest level since February of 2008. This stock is up more than 1,300 percent since the depths of the financial crisis. Uh, There you can see it's gains today and its ascension for much of this year. And finally, Albertsons is moving lower after BMO downgraded the stock to underperform, saying rising wages may hit profits. The ghost has been on a tear lately, up 50 percent nearly in three months. You can see the jump there. For more on this call with Albertsons down about 2 percent today, head on over to CNBC.com slash pro. Now to Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Hi, Frank. Hi there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The CIA reportedly warning its top officials all around the world that too many of the agency's informants are getting captured or killed. This according to the New York Times. The paper reports a top secret cable giving exact numbers of informants lost and detailed practices that could have compromised them. The head of the National Institute of Health is stepping down after leading the organization for more than a dozen years. Dr. Francis Collins will resign at the end of the year, but will continue to lead efforts researching diabetes and premature aging. On the news, health workers attacked and verbally abused. It's a growing trend during the pandemic, especially for those treating COVID patients. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Also, Volvo recalling nearly 260,000 older vehicles for airbags that can explode and send shrapnel into the car. The recall covers some S80 and S60 sedans from 2001 through 2009. And one lucky person in California bought the only winning ticket in last night's $700 million Powerball drawing. The ticket was sold in Morro Bay. It's a small coastal town in central California, just about halfway between L.A. and San Fran. And Kelly, I might have a cousin there. I've been checking really closely. (laughs) Back over to you. I mean, it seems like they should say, all right, if there was only one winner, maybe we'll give you half. We'll run it again. Isn't $350 million enough, Frank? I I totally agree, Kelly, unless I bought the ticket, then I just want it all. (laughs) (laughs) Frank, we'll see you again soon. Thank you, sir. Coming up, the Facebook whistleblower testifying in front of the Senate today. Her warnings for Congress next. And yesterday's Facebook outage may have been unfortunate timing for the social media giant. But for small businesses reliant on social media, it cost them real money. Investor Kevin O'Leary will weigh in on Main Street's impact. And as we head to break, let's do some show and tell. Shares of Pepsi slightly higher today after beating earnings estimates and hiking guidance. Still only up 2% this year lagging the S&P 500. The company acknowledged supply chain challenges and CFO Hugh Johnson telling Squawk Box 
that prices are most likely going to have to go up. I expect we'll probably see a little bit more pricing uh, increases in the first quarter of next year as as we deal with the fact that input costs are just higher. That That's just sort of a reality for us and everybody else. Welcome back. Shares of Facebook rebounding today about two and a half percent, despite some damning testimony to the Senate from the whistleblower this morning and yesterday's massive outage across its apps, the worst since 2008. Julia Borson joins me now with the latest on both fronts. Julia. Well, Kelly, whistleblower Frances Haugen urging Congress to take action and address what she called the disastrous choices that Facebook has made for children, public safety and democracy. Haugen saying that CEO Mark Zuckerberg was given opportunities to make the platform less viral, to tamp down on the spread of misinformation and that he chose not to take those options. He also she also said that the buck stops with Zuckerberg. The severity of this crisis demands that we break out of our previous regulatory frames. Facebook wants to trick you into thinking that privacy protections or changes to Section 230 alone will be sufficient. While important, these will not get to the core of the issue, which is that no one truly understands the destructive choices made by Facebook except Facebook. Haugen and senators discussing new privacy laws and the reform of Section 230, which could force Facebook to be more transparent and take responsibility for its algorithms. This all comes the day after Facebook's massive outage, the core platform, Instagram and WhatsApp, all down for nearly six hours, which Facebook says was due to a technical problem around its internal network routers rather than due to a hack. Now, this does create many headaches for businesses around the globe that rely on Facebook, the social giant says there are more than 200 million businesses around the world that use its services each month, not just for marketing, but also for customer service. And for many small businesses, Facebook effectively runs their website. So Kelly, big, big ripple effects from that outage yesterday. Sure, that are just starting to be felt. Julia, thank you very much. Joining me now to discuss the impact of that outage on small businesses is Kevin O'Leary. He's the O'Shares ETF's chairman, CNBC contributor and investor in more than 30 small businesses. Kevin, welcome. Tell me, you've had a front row seat to this, just how important Facebook is to this community. How important is it? You know, Facebook has been so consistent for so long that we never even worried about outages like this. It was pretty material because you got to understand that in America, even though it's it, we're doing more Facebook bashing now, um, and, and I understand why that happens, and it, it, it seems to happen every six or seven months. They, they're always being investigated. But the truth is that Facebook runs small business in America, more than 50 cents of every dollar spent uh, in small business, which is about 66% of the economy and two-thirds of where jobs are created in America, is spent on Facebook for a bunch of reasons. Number one is the geolocking uh, of advertising. So if I'm a veterinarian or a food services business in, uh, let's say, pick any city in the, in the Midwest or something, I don't want to advertise past 200 miles of where I am because I don't. what's happening in Los Angeles has nothing to do with my vet business in Kansas City. And so that's very important to understand. So the idea that you know, uh, Facebook shuts down is very problematic. Two issues, customer acquisition, number two, customer service and maintenance of existing customers. So it was pretty, pretty chaotic for those seven hours yesterday. 
So a friend of mine, Kevin, who a, runs a small business in town, had kind of the opposite take when, when I was asking him about it yesterday. He said that part of the pro- he said if Facebook went away tomorrow, it would help small businesses. And the reason, he said, is because their platform allows disintermediation of local business and services. In other words, if I'm you know, a digital uh, presence, if I'm a national brand, I can go directly to that customer now. Normally, you would have had uh, monopolies, basically, where if you needed a local product service or, or what have you, you're going to the local one in town. What do you make of the argument that Facebook actually makes it easier for people to sort of bypass uh, the small, the local business? No, I don't agree with that at all. In my view, it's a personal opinion, but I do work with over 30 businesses now. I 100% disagree with that. And particularly now that we come through the pandemic, the pie chart of distribution of sales and services with consumer goods and services prior to the pandemic was 50% through retail, the big box retailers like Walmart, Target, Bed Bath & Beyond, 40% through Amazon, which was slightly better. It wasn't retail's 50 cents on the dollar. Amazon was 60 cents on the dollar, but we didn't get any customer data. And then 10% went to our own websites on Shopify and other platforms. Now, many of the businesses, because retail got shut down and Amazon went to essential services, have built up their direct-to-consumer businesses on their own platforms where they gather their own customer data in a way we never have before. And what did we use to do that? Facebook. So I totally disagree with that premise. Facebook allowed us to acquire customers during the pandemic and sometimes at a 90% gross margin because we're not paying the margins to retail anymore. Facebook is the backbone of small business in America. And I guess if you want to shut it off, you'll find out some really bad news very, very quickly. Now, I get the issues around you know, privacy, but what's being debated on the Hill today has nothing to do with just Facebook by itself. Those algorithms are used by every social media site. So we might as well make laws for all of them together. It's okay to bash Facebook. They're the biggest. It's always good to bash the big one. But the truth is these issues exist everywhere across social media on every platform. So if Facebook is that essential to small businesses, then what would you say? So, you know, let's say you get up there after Francis Haugen and, and Congress says to you, all right, well, then, then what do we do about these problems? What would your answer be? My answer would be this. Let's understand what problem we're trying to solve. If we're worried about young children on the platform, I totally understand that. And I think you have to go through the whole idea that parents want some input into this, too. After all, part of the job of being a parent is deciding what content you give to your child on any platform, including what books they read. It's been that way for decades. And so there's that issue to deal with. But when it comes to small business in America, we should understand that that's commerce. Those issues aren't the same for commerce. I want to make sure that the platform that provides for building a franchise around an individual business is not harmed by an overreaching government that says we have to change everything about Facebook, everything about social media, everything about how you communicate with your customers because we're worried about one subgroup, an important subgroup. I agree. But you can't break the whole system trying to solve one problem. Solve that problem. If you want to shut down Facebook and Instagram for people under 18, okay, let that be a decision the market decides. But let's remember, 66% of jobs in America come from small business. Don't hurt small business. The last thing you need is another politician telling you how to run your business. That happens to be a personal opinion, but I don't want that, that's for sure. And I don't think any of the businesses I invest in want it either. So I don't mind the bashing, 
It's, it's a circus that's gone on for years and years and years. Generally, nothing happens afterward. Every time you can say, this is the one that's going to get Facebook. Right. Let's solve the problem they're trying to solve, not break American business. So the shares are up 2% today. Your other personal opinion I'll ask about is what would you do with the shares? So then would you hang on to them? Of course. It's been a core holding for me, 5% of our operating company since the beginning. Why? I need and use the service. As soon as something better comes along, I'll use that. Let the competition begin. I wasn't even using TikTok 18 months ago. Now it's a huge part of what we do on social media. The, the, the market changes based on need. I'm not worried about Facebook. If they don't do a good job, they'll lose their franchise and someone else will pick it up. So let the market be the market. Let's keep those politicians away from American small business. We don't need them there. Why don't they pass that infrastructure bill? They haven't been able to do that. Meanwhile, they're spending all their time bashing Facebook. Well, uh, the point is taken, Kevin, and I appreciate you joining me today to talk about it. Thank you. Kevin O'Leary with his strong views on the essentialness of Facebook to small businesses. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Up next, from the metaverse to sports betting, a new CNBC documentary takes a look at all the ways people can now wager on anything, anytime. We'll have an exclusive clip involving a $10,000 hat next. And take a look at shares of PayPal, higher today but down 16% from their July highs. And Jim Cramer is ready to buy the dip. You can read all about his trade in his new newsletter, the CNBC Investing Club. When you sign up, you'll get access to Jim's daily emails, articles, and exclusive online videos. His winners, his losers, the trends he's seeing in the market. Find out more at cnbc.com slash investing club or by using that QR code on the screen. We're back in a minute. Welcome back. Shares of companies involved in the metaverse are climbing higher this year. Roblox up more than 67 percent. And this multidimensional shared online space is being promoted as the next step in the evolution of the Internet. In CNBC's new documentary, Generation Gamble, Melissa Lee takes a look at what some of these virtual worlds already have to offer. Decentral Games Casinos reportedly racked up $100 million in crypto transactions in the first six months. In addition to gambling, players can invest in NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, those speculative digital assets like land, art, or fashion. For example, this pair of pants is $4,000. $4,000 for virtual bell-bottom pants. Exactly. $10,000 for that hat. That seems like a lot of money for something only your avatar can wear. And it's not the only game in town. Melissa joins me now, and I could ask a lot of questions about the $10,000 <laughs> hat, but I know this is a much broader issue that is raising some concerns about sort of the gamification of everything. It's sort of the notion, Kelly, you know, during the pandemic, people got online. They're looking for things to do. They're looking for ways to earn money. And fast fortune was sort of the mantra of this younger generation. So they were online betting. They were online investing. And the lines between them are really getting blurred. If you open up the apps, according to a lot of the gambling experts we spoke to in this documentary, uh, you know, you take a look at, for instance, a Robinhood or a Webull. It's all the same as gambling. There's intermittent reinforcement. There are graphics. There are things that just feel like you're gamifying the whole experience. And, by the way, a lot of people don't think it's real money because all they have to do is press a button. Sure. It doesn't, they don't have to walk up to a teller and, and pull out money and you know, make a bet or, or deposit it with your broker, et cetera. 
it's instantaneous these days. Right. And I guess the question is, where is this all leading? You know, it's one thing if people go, well, you know, I, I just needed a different form of entertainment while I was shut in. OK, that's fine. But it feels like that became this opening through which to now kind of push forward a lot of the ways that we experience these traditional parts of the economy. Yeah. I mean, we're not trying to make a, a judgment on what is investing, what is proper investing. But for this new generation, they think that this is, in fact, investing, many of them, that this is the way to earn the money for your retirement, to buy a car, to buy a house. You see that on Instagram. All these social media influencers on TikTok with more than a million followers, they tell you exactly how to do it, oh, <laughs> according yeah. to them, by buying this stock or buying this crypto. And it's, it's not um, you know, based on any fundamentals. And these people, you don't know who they are. Well, and I think part of it right now is you don't know if they're wrong. So it's been so right. early and, you know, in this bull market where the joke, you know, the old line from last year, stocks never go down. NFTs, you want to spend four or $10,000? Well, who's to say whether that's going to pay off or not? I mean, I hear people passionately speaking about how much these tokens and other things will be worth in these metaverses in the future. And they say, you'd be crazy. It's going to be a land grab. This is your chance to grab it. It could be years or decades before we know if that's true or not. In a bull market, it's easy to make a right call. It's easy to make a good trade, right? We won't know. That's that is the truth of it. And if you take a look at some of these meme stocks or Doge, for instance, some people made a fortune on all of these. But if you got in at the top because you're following the crowd, you weren't so lucky. Well, I still have a lot to learn about all of the, the metaverse. Yes, going on here. <laughs> the, the look of incredulity on your face. <laughs> the ten thousand dollar hat. Uh, you know, if, if that's not the sign of a top, but I will watch the full doc. Uh, can I stream it? Yes. Okay. Melissa, we appreciate it. Be sure to catch the premiere of Generation Gamble tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. And if you're one of the apes, that's good. That's the next one, right? Melissa? That's the next one. Okay. It works. Reach out, though. Do it. Now, we need a QR code for that as well. Uh, Melissa, we really appreciate it. Still ahead, the ESG investing trend is extending beyond stocks. Green muni bonds have seen an uptick in popularity. We'll speak with the top muni regulator about the impact next. Speaking of regulators, Senator Elizabeth Warren joins Closing Bell today for a first on CNBC interview at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it. Welcome back to The Exchange. The ESG movement is making its way into the muni bond market with green bond issuance hitting record highs. According to data from Moody's Analytics, green bond issuance is expected to hit $375 billion this year. It's up 40 percent from last year's issuance, but still just a small part of the $4 trillion muni bond space. Here with more on the changing dynamics of this market is Mark Kim. He's the CEO of the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. Mark, it's good to have you. And um, I guess the first thing to ask is what's a green bond? Sure. Kelly, thank you for inviting me on CNBC's The Exchange. It's a pleasure to be here with you. To answer your question, what is a municipal green bond? It is targeted towards investments that are aimed at achieving certain environmental outcomes or aimed at achieving environmental sustainability. And we are seeing a growth in municipal green bond issuance by state and local governments to meet that rising demand for from investors for this type of investment. So I read, though, that there's no universally accepted market standard or definition of what makes a bond issuance green. So, uh, you know, is that itself a problem or is that you think part of the evolution of the space? There was only two billion dollars in this kind of issuance a decade ago. Um, What real world examples have these bonds financed? So these bonds have financed both climate resilience, so looking at building the next generation of infrastructure that is more resilient to the impacts of climate change, 
these types of investments, these bonds are also financing clean energy and other projects that lead to a more sustainable future. If you think about the impacts of climate change, whether it's wildfires on the West Coast, hurricanes on the East Coast, it is our state and local governments that are on the front lines of battling climate change. And the investments that they're making in infrastructure are largely going to be financed through the municipal bond market, which is why green bonds make sense for the muni market. You know, so there's a couple of things that I'm thinking about. Are these, is the appetite for green bonds driven by people who need ESG approval for their portfolios, in other words? Um, on their own, a lot of these investments would seem to make financial sense anyway and would attract investors anyway. So what is the importance of this distinction? Is it to just bring extra sort of investors into into this space or are they potentially giving up some returns in order to step a little bit out there uh, in terms of some of the financing for these projects? So I think there's an argument in the market that ESG, environmental, social and governance factors, are totally separate from investment decisions. And I think we're seeing a maturing and an evolving muni bond market where investors are integrating ESG factors into their investment decisions and consider them material to make investment decisions. We're also seeing other market participants incorporate and integrate ESG factors into their business models. For example, all of the major credit rating agencies in the muni space now either provide an independent ESG score in addition to the credit rating, or they're incorporating ESG factors into their underlying fundamental credit analysis. Yeah, We're well, seeing fund managers. In fact, recently, we saw the very first sustainable muni bond ETF launched a few weeks ago. We are seeing fund managers now incorporating ESG factors into their individual security selection and their portfolio valuation models. So it's no longer something that is happening independent of the investment decision. It is actually being integrated within the investment decision itself. Well, like you said, a lot of these places are on the front lines, uh, seeing the impact of you know storms and unseasonal weather patterns and you know really suffering as a result. So I can understand uh, the multiple factors driving this. And it's a reminder as well, no matter the fate of the infrastructure bill, there are some, a lot of other financing avenues out there to kind of push this ball forward. Mark, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Mark Kim is the CEO of the Muni Securities Rulemaking Board. Now to Bitcoin, bucking the negative tech trend and closing in on the $50,000 mark again today. There it is at 50190 Why the crypto's climb could continue when we come back. Welcome back. Tech has been trounced, but Bitcoin is bucking the negative sentiment. It's up more than 20 percent over the past week. Kate Rooney is here with more on the numbers and what people are saying about how high it could go. Kate. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, Bitcoin emerging as a real outlier this week. The cryptocurrency topping $50,000 for the first time since early September. And this rally comes as the Nasdaq and some of those high growth tech names got crushed yesterday. They're recovering a bit today, though. And in the past month or so, Bitcoin really had been trading in sync with those big tech names and less of a store of value or any sort of hedge. For the year, Bitcoin is now up more than 70 percent. A few drivers this week, Kelly, 50K was really seen as a key resistance level for crypto traders. So moving above that can often start sort of a domino effect. And analysts are also pointing 
to short covering as those prices move higher. Bitcoin is also above its 200-day moving average, which Fundstrat points out as a key trading level and says it is, quote, indicative of strong forward performance. Fears around Evergrande and regulatory crackdowns in China, as well as some tougher talk from U.S. regulators, had added to that September route for Bitcoin. But there is some new optimism about a Bitcoin ETF being approved in October. That's despite the SEC delaying some other decisions around ETFs and more bullish comments out of Wall Street. Bank of America, for example, calling the digital asset sector too large to ignore. And finally, we've seen a rebound of inflows into crypto markets after seeing its longest run of outflows on record. Bitcoin is now in its third straight week of inflows, totaling $115 million. CoinShares analyst calling that a decisive turnaround in sentiment. Kelly, back to you. And so many of the long-term holders, what do we say, 80% of people you had that survey? Yeah, above 80%. In it for the long run, yeah. So uh, fewer Bitcoin available to buy. So that liquidity or uh, lack of liquidity in Bitcoin markets is seen as, as good for prices. Absolutely. Kate, thanks very much. Kate Rooney, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.